I'm Holly Elmore. And I'm Alex Frieder. And this is the Turing Test, Harvard Effective Altruism student podcast, bringing new perspectives and fresh ideas on how to do the most good for the world. Our theme is the ideological Turing Test. Economist Brian Kaplan coined the term the ideological Turing Test in 2011, explaining that if someone can correctly explain a position but continue to disagree with it, that position is less likely to be correct. And if ability to correctly explain a position leads almost automatically to agreement with it, that position is more likely to be correct. So, Holly, who are we testing today? (laughs) So today our guest is Scott Weathers. Scott is a student at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, and he's also the Associate Project Director of Charity Science Health. Charity Science Health is a new charity that was founded within the effective altruism community with the goal of becoming one of the most cost-effective organizations in the global health space. Before joining the charity science team, Scott conducted cost-effectiveness analyses on global health interventions as a summer intern at the WHO, which is the World Health Organization. He has experience working at the Center for Global Development, the U.S. Department of State, and Carolina for Kibera. So Scott, why did you decide to join charity science? Thanks, Holly, for having me. Yeah, I started working for Charity Science about uh, six months ago, I think. I was working in D.C. beforehand, and I started talking to Joey Savoy, one of the founders of, of Charity Science, um, and I was really impressed by the work that, that that they were doing at the time. Charity Science was in really an exploratory mode, I think, and we were really looking at, you know, across the entire universe of global health interventions, what could we possibly fund? So this was, you know, took the form of a massive spreadsheet of hundreds of different interventions that we that we could think of and we could find evidence for and evaluating them against each other. So I, I talked to Joey about this at the time, and I was really, really impressed by how systematic charity science was and how focused on impact uh, they were. And so that, that, you know, got my interest. And I pretty early on decided that it was going to make a lot of sense for me to work for charity science. Um, so I was starting a master's program at, here at Harvard. Uh, so I'm doing a global health uh, two-year master's, but I, but I thought that you know, working for charity science would be a really, really effective use of my time. So, you know, I've been working on a lot of things for charity science since then, mostly partnerships. So I just got back a couple of weeks ago from India where I was meeting with hospitals, meeting with other implementing organizations, uh, organizations like JPAL and Evidence Action. Uh, JPAL is the Abdul Latif Jamil Poverty Action Lab, and they run randomized control trials and other similar, you know, like-minded organizations that believe in the importance of evidence and cost-effectiveness like we do. So that's, that's kind of the, the quick sketch. I can still see that you've got the India glow. <laughs> Just a little bit, yeah. So it seems like, no doubt, it's a valuable use of your time, but how do you have enough time uh, as a master's student? <laughs> yeah, it's it's really rough. I mean, you have to prioritize all the time. Um, uh, yeah, you're saying always, right? <laughs> always, yeah. Always optimizing is my motto. Like, you, I, you, yeah, you really just have to think about how to spend your time most effectively and where it's going to make the greatest impact. Uh, you know, I'll be honest, like, some a lot of times my classes maybe aren't the best use of my time. <laughs> so this is something that I did a lot in undergrad. And I think, I think my classes now at Harvard are actually really, really rewarding, and I really enjoy my professors a lot. But especially in undergrad, you know, I didn't spend all that much time on my classes and it was okay. I was totally comfortable getting B's every once in a while and even a C, you know, God forbid, um, if it meant that I could work on a project that was higher impact. And so that's definitely I've taken that was, the I think, one of the most important things I learned in college. And I've just kind of taken that through through master's is just, you know, do the do the thing that's the most high impact. That's really interesting. Um, the the sort of optimizing mindset and approach to founding charities, uh, figuring out from scratch which interventions work the best. It seems to be pretty rare in the uh, nonprofit sector. Do you know of any other examples or is this, are you the pioneers of this approach? (laughs) 
Well, we'd like to think that, yeah. I mean, no, I I think that there there definitely are plenty of organizations right now that are sort of at the cusp of the you know evidence the movement towards evidence based policy making towards randomized control trials. There's, I think there's a lot of organizations that are doing that. I mean, off the top of my head, um, I think GiveWell comes to mind. Obviously, the Against Malaria Foundation, Evidence Action, those are other GiveWell recommended charities. But also, you know, organizations like the Center for Global Development. Well, there's plenty of organizations I think that are I would sort of broadly consider a part of this movement, um, and that's been it's been really inspiring. I think that we probably take it to an even more literal degree. We're very very focused on you know getting at the really fine grained details of what studies say about the effectiveness of a given intervention. But I I think there's plenty of organizations that I would consider like minded and and just as good at this as, as we are. So, uh, what do you think the value of founding uh, a charity is uh, compared to say? earning to give and donating to existing charities? That's a really good question, yeah. I mean, I so I think in expected value, uh, founding a charity is one of the most cost of, most effective things that anyone can do. Um, so Peter Herford is an effective altruist that works that is that's on uh, Charity Sciences Board, and he works for us a, a good amount. He had, he has a really fantastic calculation and and uh, about this exact question, and I'm happy to give you guys the link and maybe put it in the show notes. So he basically calculated, you know, what's the value of creating a top charity. Essentially, he concluded that being, you know, one one the equivalent of one full time staff member at a charity science or another potential top charity is essentially the equivalent in terms of the impact of giving four hundred thousand dollars to a give well top charity. Um, so that's that's pretty good impact. You know, that's a lot more than you could make earning to give or doing a similar career. It's, so we're pretty excited about that. So charity science got um, a couple months ago. We got a two hundred thousand dollar grant from Give Well. And in their post, um, GiveWell said that Give the Charity Science had a 15% chance of becoming a GiveWell top recommended charity by 2019, and we were really ecstatic about that. Um, and we think that that was pretty much in line with our internal estimates of what the likelihood of our project based on the intervention you chose, based on uh, us as an organization, mm-hmm. how how effective we are, how well run we we are, things like that. And and that to us is a really good sign. You know, we know that by cr- in trying to create a top charity, this is a really ambitious project, and it's most likely going to fail. Like we're very open about the fact that you know we're not overconfident. We're not Silicon Valley types that think that everything we're going to do is going to succeed. We think there's a really good possibility that we'll fail, but we think that the expected value of creating Give a Top Charity is so high that this is a project we just have to do. And I think that I I wish that more people I think in the effective altruist movement and just more broadly would take that approach. Is that even if you think that something probably will fail, it's worth doing because if it succeeds, the impact would be so, so great. So you often hear, you know, like criticisms of EA, which I think are fairly valid, that our GiveWell's approach relies on existing research and who is going to do the research, you know, for the things that we don't know we don't know about. And so what do you think about this approach for both? I mean, it sounds like you're involved in both gathering new data and implementing new projects. What do you think should be the, the balance of those two aims? And what do you think is the importance or neglectedness of getting the new data? Yeah, that's a really fantastic question. I don't have a super empirical answer. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, both are obviously really important. I mean, we at Charity Science, I think we really value and rely on the work of other partners. Like, you know, we use JPAL studies all the time in our work. We look at tons we i mean we there's so many academics so many people that you know too many to name that we that we look at really carefully we we rely on a lot of other people for the work that they've done and we really value that what's the right balance though 
That strikes me as like a, like an empirical question, and I don't know. I'd have like very well answered. Thank you. There's a, there's a <laughs> thank you. There's a, there's like many a PhD thesis there to be written on that, and there's some. I'm sure there's some model that you could a create. A simpler for question. Yeah. Do you think that EA is currently like close to the right balance, or is there a much a greater need for more research or the right kind of research? Also, I mean, how much do you think the research comes from just doing the implementation and making a good guess? Yeah, I mean, I personally, I do think that probably in the EA movement, we lean more towards the direction of research and not implementing. Like, I mean, Nick, so Nick Cooney, he's a, an effective altruist that works for an animal animal rights organization or animal welfare organization. He's talked about this a little bit about how, you know, we, we have a bias for thinking. And I think that's a really good trait. I mean, effective altruists are really analytical. We really care about getting the evidence right. That's a That's an awesome trait. And I don't want to get rid of that by any means. But I do think that we have, you know, we have a tendency to not uh, to, to not implement, to not direct projects. And that's something we should be doing, you know. Um, not every project is going to be a success, but in the long run, if everyone starts implementing a project, you know, a, a fraction of them will work and those ones will explode and be really good. Explode in a good way, I mean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you got to think through these unintended yeah. consequences. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So, yeah, I would say in the, in the EA movement, we probably need to get more on the side of just doing things, found, found something. So to every effective altruist out there, I'd say go found a charity. <laughs> cool. Uh, it must be psychologically hard, though, to work on uh, such uncertain projects. Uh, most people, when they're doing good, at least, uh, or trying to do good, seem to have a preference for going with uh, sort of sure bets uh, where uh, they know that they will make an impact. Do you find that hard or... Is the excitement just uh, <laughs> so big that you know? Well, I like I like the excitement. I think I like the fear, the fear of failure. I guess, but um, no. I mean, I think that like, yeah, I, th I think that you really need to be motivated by the the expectation of potential impact. You know, it, like there's plenty of low hanging fruit out there that that you could pick, but I think that it's it's just much more ambi ambitious to pick things that, that have the possibility of failing. Cool. So going back to the object level, uh, how did uh, Charity Science choose the intervention um, that um, that you uh, chose? That is the uh, texting in uh, India to uh, remind about immunizations. And what were the other candidates? Uh, and are you looking into other uh, other charities that could be founded in this way? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah, we, as I said, you know, we started from, you know, a really, really systematic process looking at hundreds, probably even thousands of interventions, put them all in a ginormous spreadsheet and had our different criteria for the things that we care about. You know, obviously, probably the strength of evidence and the cost effectiveness of those interventions being the most important. And from there, we just worked through the spreadsheet, looked at every single one, you know, looked at keywords in Google Scholar, looked at, tried to find as many randomized control trials as we could find. Um, you know, observational, looking at observational data too, and seeing how, how those interventions stacked up. And, you know, pretty quickly, a good, like a, a pretty solid class of interventions emerged. So um, some of the top candidates I think that we considered were tobacco taxation, iron and folic acid fortification, conditional cash transfers. And, and you know, we settled on text message reminders for vaccines um, because we think that it's one of the most cost-effective evidence-based interventions we could pick. And it also just has a lot of flexibility around other things that we could do. So just, you know, a little bit of background right now on text message reminders. So basically, we send text messages to moms and dads, their cell phones in India. You know, cell phone penetration is really high in India. So most people in the developing world, but especially in India, have cell phones and use them. Um, and so we have pretty good evidence that basically if you send send a mom or a dad a text message, that that text message, you know, on average will boost immunization rates between eight and a half to about 17 and a half percent. That's a pretty big impact. 
that's that's sort of what the randomized control trials show in other contexts and we're obviously curious to see if that holds up in india and the states that we're working in um but there's about five studies that show that positive impact um another reason that we really liked text message reminders for vaccines uh that i mentioned earlier was is the flexibility so you know right now clearly we're, we're at a very early stage as an organization and we're very focused on uh immunization reminders and we obviously want to stick with that for now but you know long term who knows there's a lot of flexibility around you know, potentially using these reminder systems for getting moms to breastfeed their kids or upping uh, the utilization of vitamin A supplementation or even um, antenatal care. I mean, another possibility is even tobacco cessation reminders. It's just kind of sort of an endless possibility of once you have this platform built around text message reminders, you can use it for a lot of different things. So, you know, those are sort of, I think, the three, probably the big reasons that we're excited about text message reminders is that the cost effectiveness, the evidence base and the flexibility of the intervention. There's lots of others, but I think those those are three that stick out for me. So since you're doing this public health master's or global health, sorry, what's, I don't know. Yeah, global health, yeah. Was that approach favored or the text message reminders favored because they rank higher in like traditional global health ethics about interventions? You know, it's not a ta- it's not a tax. It's just uh, providing information, that sort of thing. And how much do you take that traditional thinking into account when you're looking at these interventions? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we definitely do listen to those, those sort of criticisms, you know, so like, for example, one one that I could give was, you know, I think give directly, for example, this is an, an effective altruist organization that does direct cash transfers. For example, they really like unconditional cash transfers. They don't like the idea of putting conditions on cash because they see it as patronizing or um, paternalistic is the word I think that they use. And, you know, I, I put some value on that that claim. I think that I think that's something worth considering. Um, and if there's a way if there's a way to do obviously, if there's a way to do a global health intervention that is, that is less patronizing or less paternalistic, you should do it that way, clearly. You know, so it, this this argument specifically, you could also apply maybe to, to tobacco taxes, that tobacco taxes are paternalistic because they're, you know, encouraging people to make choices in a certain direction. I don't I don't place a lot of emphasis on it in that instance, for example. I think that, you know, working on tobacco taxation, this was another project that we really considered was, you know, while we were weighing, you know, sort of the top tier of of interventions, we thought about founding an organization that would be located in India, you know, encouraging the Indian government at the state level to up their taxation, tobacco taxation rates. And I think that that intervention is high impact enough that I don't place a lot of emphasis on the the paternalism argument or against that specific intervention. You know, we decided against it for, for other reasons, but so obviously we listen to these criticisms sort of made by the, the ethics community or by the broader global health community outside of EA. But this, at least in this example that I'm bringing up, I don't think we put too much emphasis on it. We care a lot more about getting the, getting the intervention right in terms of the evidence and in terms of the cost effectiveness. Interesting. Have you received any similar criticisms uh, for the particular interventions uh, that you're currently pursuing? It's a good question. Um... We're at a very early stage, so it's hard for me to come up with. I mean, there's plenty, plenty of things that can go wrong. I mean, it's it's you know the inter- the intervention we're we're trying to scale up is like there's lots of missteps along the way. Like like you know we're very open about the fact that we don't know if we're going to succeed or not. We're very open about that, which I think is a really important attitude. Um, but as an intervention itself, I think we we haven't heard a lot of criticism so far, at least because. It's really empowering. I mean, you're giving people information. You're reminding them that, look, you know, you, you made this appointment. We would love to see you in our clinic to get your kids vaccinated. I think that's sort of like a very I think you can come at this from a lot of different moral theories, ethical theories, and think that this is a really good thing unambiguously. Interesting. Do we know the reasons why people don't get their children vaccinated in the first place? Is that just procrastination or are there some other reasons? 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of psychological reasons. There's there's a lot of you know there's there's supply and demand side factors. Um, so all immunizations in India are free free from the government, but there's still you know tons of barriers after that. So if if you're a mom living in a rural area, you know you might have to drive or, or take a pay for a bus, you know, at, to a hospital hours away. That's significant money. That's opportunity cost in terms of your time. You know, when I was in Delhi last month visiting some of the hospitals, there were, this was just one hospital in the middle of Delhi, and they were, they're, I asked, you know, the nurses there in the immunization ward, you know, where where do your, your uh, patients come from? And they just said all over. Like, it, they'll come from, you know, two states west, um, just because that was the only bus they could get. There's, you know, tons, just the sheer distance and cost of getting to a place where vaccines are available is a lot. And that obviously results in lower vaccination rates in some states. Beyond that, obviously, you know, people are busy, people are forgetful. Um, you know, there's some research around the cognitive weight of poverty, essentially that being poor is a stressor and really has to take up a lot of your brain space. And so that can be another reason, um, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that people don't get vaccinated, but availability probably isn't one of them. It's it's like not just as simple as making vaccines free, you know. Yeah. So, what would be some examples of the diseases that people get as a result of not getting vaccinated? Yeah. So, so our uh, our vaccine reminders right now work on the whole, um, like the the complete vaccination schedule that the Indian government recommends to to kids. So this is for diseases like rotavirus, measles, diphtheria, uh, the pneumococcal vaccine, the pneumococcal vaccine. Um, and each of these is, are sort of delivered over, uh, I think it's a two-year schedule um, from birth. So all of these diseases kind of combined have a really large mortality burden, and, and a lot of it is con concentrated in India. So that's one of the reasons that we wanted to, to work there is because it's so cost-effective to work in India, but also just the burden is very large compared to other states that we could work, other countries we could work in. Yeah, but uh, it must also be very hard to work uh, in India. I assume that none of your employees is uh, local, or do you have? Uh... Yeah, we actually just we we while I was there uh, last month, we had one employee located there, and we actually just hired another one recently. Oh, fantastic! Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> what are the biggest hurdles to entering the market in India, and do you have to negotiate with the government a lot? What? Yeah, I mean, India is, is a very difficult country to work in. I think, I, thankfully, I was there in the winter, so it wasn't very hot, which was very nice. <laughs> But I think one of, the, one of the issues definitely that comes to mind first of, of working in India is that I think on behalf of like the, the Indian government and just Indian NGOs that we've worked, worked with, there is a lot of skepticism of working with outsiders. And I think that's for good reason in a lot of cases. But I think that like as, as Westerners, as, as a white person, you know, we do have to be very mindful of the fact that we're enter, entering into a context that we don't always understand. And there's plenty of people there before us who have tried inter different interventions. We're trying to scale up their own things. So we need to be really aware of that as we go in and, and you know, not not come in just blustering that we have the we know the exactly what they need. But, you know, beyond that, I think that that was that was one reason that we actually decided against doing tobacco taxation at the moment. I mean, we're definitely still considering this, but I think that at least at the moment there in the Indian government, there's it's probably more effective for us to work on a direct intervention like text message reminders as opposed to encouraging state-level governments to up their taxation rates for tobacco. You know, something like that where, you know, it literally would be a, uh, an or a Western organization trying to, you know, encourage uh, another, other governments to, to do something that might, come, that might come across. That might be a little more dif difficult to sell. 
Yeah. Uh, so related to that, do you hear pushback on your efforts, maybe, be, you know, the accusation that you're crowding out government efforts or homegrown efforts? Uh, does that come up? Yeah, we haven't heard that criticism yet. I mean, I think that there is this is sort of like the Bill Easterly. People frame this as the Bill Easterly argument. You know, Denby Samoyo has written about this. Um, and I don't think it's entirely fair because even like Bill Easterly, who's, you know, the most ardent uh, anti-aid critic, concedes in his books you know he talks about how great global health interventions are um and it's it's very clear that you know like the we want well first off we want to work with governments you know we are trying to work with state level governments um so that you know that argument on its face is not totally true but but i think also just the the evidence behind that that claim that people often make is very weak and i think that when you when you look at the sort of work that we're doing in global health i think it's very different from a lot of the other parts of the you know foreign aid world where that criticism might actually apply so how does GiveWell think about uh, this incubator project? Uh, what are their criteria for choosing? Yeah, you're talking about the work we're doing on charity entrepreneurship? Uh, no, I, I mean, so we went th- through this process with, with GiveWell of, or of whether or not you're going to receive their uh, grants uh, from their incubator project. Yeah. Uh, do you know what criteria they're choosing for funding new charities? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're looking at a lot of the same criteria as us, I think. And they, I think we were very values aligned with, with GiveWell in terms of thinking about what to support in global health. So they really care, obviously, about evidence and cost effectiveness, um, as well as, you know, the, the transparency and effectiveness, like the efficacy of the organization itself. You know, they want to support, this is a key reason they support GiveDirectly, is they want to support organizations that just are really well run and, and can spend money effectively. What do you think the next charity startup will be, if any? Well, that's a great question because we're trying to found the next one. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, so Charity Science has we've got a project called Charity Entrepreneurship. um, And we, you know, within the next couple of years, we do want to found another charity. We're really interested in in scaling up one of the many interventions that we've already identified through our research as potentially high impact. So, you know, we have this spreadsheet of hundreds of interventions and we're happy (laughs) to share that with anyone. Um, and we are looking right now for co-founders to found the next top charity. So yeah, we have uh, we have one uh, one person, Brendan Epen, who's really interested in in founding a top charity as he well as Harvard EA, by the way. He is. Yeah. He is a Harvard EA. Yeah. They graduated, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he's very interested in in founding a, a top charity, and if if and if you want to be a co-founder, you know, like submit your application. Um, and you know this that you know, there's a lot, there is a lot of flexibility in that role in terms of what that intervention, what that charity would focus on. Um, obviously, like, like I mentioned earlier, I think some of the interventions that we're looking at very closely are tobacco taxation, iron and folic acid fortification, conditional cash transfers, but there's plenty of others down the line. I mean, we, there's a lot of top tier interventions that are not being implemented, and we really want more people in the effective altruism movement to scale these things up. So, you know, if 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 we're not quite the right fit for you to 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 start your own charity, we you know go somewhere else and do that on, on your own. We you know and we'll and we'll work with you and talk with you through this project if that if, if that's helpful. Um, we we want more people implementing effective interventions. Oh, I hope Brandon succeeds because I would get so many warm cozies from <laughs> running our at the time he joined. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> He was loads of fun to talk to, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you've mentioned the importance or the importance of concerns about dealing with foreign governments. Um, and I know you've also worked on lobbying with our government uh, in the U.S., I should say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so what do you can you give us your thoughts about uh, lobbying and what are the returns and, you know, why do we not see more of it in EA? 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, just a little bit of context first. I So before I started this job with Charity Science, I was working in D.C. as a global policy associate with IntraHealth International. Um, so IntraHealth is an NGO based in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. But um, but I was working out of our D.C. office mainly around trying to uh, doing a lot of coalition work, trying to push for legislation around frontline health workers mainly. Um, so I worked on some uh, resolutions around the importance of health workers, as well as a bill on on maternal and child health called the Reach Every Mother and Child Act. And so, yeah, I mean, to get to your question, I, I really do also wish that more effective altruists were working on lobbying. I think that um, for similar reasons, actually, expected value arguments around why founding a charity is can be is potentially uh, effective. You know, lobbying, I think, is also really effective. So, you know, if you're if you're a lobbyist, if you're working in D.C. like I was, you know, every day I knew that, like, the marginal effort that I was putting in probably wasn't going to be the tipping point for a given piece of legislation. You know, the bill, one of the main bills, the Reach Every Mother and Child Act that I was working on hasn't yet passed. And I would be really shocked if I was the, I was the reason that it did pass. You know, that, that would be pretty shocking. But um, I do think that, you know, a bill of that magnitude can have an enormous impact saving probably on the order of magnitude of like a couple hundred thousand lives, depending on, you know, what assumptions you use. But if so, if I can up the percentage likelihood of that bill passing by even 1%, you know, I'll, I'll have done my job. And in terms of expected value, I'll have made a really enormous impact. Speaking of the yeah. likelihood, do we have any evidence uh, on the success rate of, of lobbying efforts? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think the most rigorous calculations that I've seen have actually come from private sector lobbying. So there have been studies of a couple different bills. It's it's hard, you know, it's hard to generalize across all of lobbying as, as a whole, just because it's such a huge in industry. But there have been attempts to sort of quantify, you know, narrow bills, like when lobbying does work. And one calculation, it was a bill that passed in 2004. I, I'm going to get I'm not going to say the name of the bill it was like the American it was the American Jobs Act or something like that. I can't remember the exact title. But the study essentially tried to quantify, you know, what was the return on investment for that for companies that, that supported that bill. And it turned out for like every, for every dollar that they invested in lobbying, it returned about two hundred dollars. So extremely high return on investment. And there have been other studies that I think have sort of confirmed that finding broadly. You know, it's, you can't extrapolate from a given a given one example to to the entire sector. But but I do think that, that sort of illustrates how I think you I think you can apply the same argument to like humanitarian lobbying or lobbying for global health things, and that the return on investment is extremely extremely high. I mean, just in in the last year, Congress. So you know, think about this. This is a this is during a time when Congress is passing almost no legislation. It's been historically unproductive. One probably one of the most un, most unproductive Congresses we ever we ever had in American history. Three bills were passed last year on on global development and global health. Three three enormous bills that had a massive impact on the humani humanitarian sector and sort of our our world. The Reach Act, the Reach Every Mother and Child Act, which is the bill that I that I was working on, hasn't passed yet. Um, but I think if it does, it it will probably be the most consequential of those potentially four pieces of legislation. Mm -hmm. So, what are some methods uh, for lobbying <laughs> uh, in uh, in Washington D.C.? Yeah, I mean, I think as for for like for the effective altruists out there and who are private citizens and you know are unsure about doing this full time, I think there's plenty of things you can do. I mean, there are there obviously there's not any there aren't any effective altruist organizations at least that I know of that are working explicitly on lobbying at the moment, but there are aligned organizations that that are doing plenty of work. So the two for me that come to mind are Results, which is an organization uh, based in D.C. that mainly supports you know global and domestic poverty legislation, um, as well as the one. Campaign. Um, the One Campaign did a lot of work in the late '90s and early 2000s around debt for African countries, as well as um, HIV/AIDS um, when when that when that epidemic was was um, 
uh, thriving, I guess. So I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that for private citizens interested in, in doing lobbying work and pushing their, their legislators towards effective global health legislation or development leg- legislation, you know, writing letters is really good. Phone calls, you know, there's, there's been an article from the New York, I think it was from the New York Times going around um, about how calling your representatives is one of the most effective ways to influence their views because they, a staff member has to pick up the phone right there and yeah. listen to you. Um, you know, an email they can just put in, in the trash bin, a, a letter, a letter they, they will read, but, but it's, it's not as forceful as a call, I think. H- handwritten letters are really, really good. Um, so a lot of congressional offices do have a scoring system essentially for like, if they get one call, it's X number of points uh, to- that they put towards like saying, you know, our constituents care about this issue and are on that that side of the issue. Handwritten letters count a lot in that that point system, um, just because it shows that someone really cares. They took the time to to put the energy into that, um, and then after that, you know, typed letters and then emails, hand, like uh, emails that you write yourself, and then like way down below that, I would say emails that you know an organization wrote and you just signed your name on. The, those don't. I think that's almost. I think offices really don't appreciate that and might even look more negatively at your stance if you do that Um, (laughs) uh, just because it's spam essentially. But but handwritten letters and calls are definitely the way to go. And and, you know, organizations like Results and the One Campaign are great for tapping into that if you want if that's something you want to do. And the Boston Effective Altruist Group. I mean, I've been really involved in that lately. So we're getting up and moving if anyone wants to talk to us about that. I have spoken to a few people who uh, thought that this was going to be happening any day, but an app for calling your representatives. Like, I did the Hillary phone banking app. You know, yeah. Oops, sorry, it's out. <laughs> I supported Hillary. Um, shocked. Shocked. I did, um, I did the Hillary phone banking app, and I thought it was awesome, and I thought, like, this should exist for calling your representatives. And yeah. um, do you have any updates on that? That's a really good question. I, I know those apps are out there. I don't know the names of them off the top of my head. Um but I'm, I'm sure we can put it in the show notes. We can do a little bit of Googling and find out. This my reason to answer this question. I, yeah. um, I will figure this out. <laughs> There's, there are definitely apps. And the thing that I do that I think is really, really good is you, you know, uh, just Google right now your the phone numbers of your representatives, both their office in at home, you know, wherever you're from, or and their office in D.C. And, you know, so you've got two senators and, and your representative. And whenever, you know, whenever something is happening on the Hill, whenever you hear about an issue that you really, you really care about um, and, and is sort of hot in the news especially um you know call call their office and just say what you think it's really easy you can set a calendar reminder every week to do it um it's not intimidating it's often an intern picking up the phone so you don't need to worry about you know (laughs) impressing them or anything just just uh just you know get your point across and say and politely and it's it's a really good use of 30 seconds of your time so let's say i want to become a full-time lobbyist in uh, in washington dc or brussels (laughs) Uh, what should I imagine is the day-to-day life sort of like house of cards or <laughs> yeah yeah I killed a lot of people actually so oh. <laughs> no no, no. <laughs> um, that's what it takes that's what it's being real yeah no I mean but in utilitarian yeah. terms I'm sure the returns on yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah. positive <laughs> no. we'll have to edit this out <laughs> <laughs> can't let slip on the plan <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think for, for folks that are interested in, in doing lobbying full time, I would say, um, you know, get some get some relevant experience first. 
if you want to do, let's say, global health lobbying is what you want to do. I think that that's right now. I think I'm I'm very confident that global health lobbying is is very effective. There's tons of other issues, and I, I hope that more effective altruists sort of investigate those to think through where else we can be effective at the margins in terms of lobbying. But let's say you want to do global health. I'd say get some relevant experience, you know, whether it's working on, on uh, domestic health organizations or international health organizations um, and, and you know, get some experience where you're working with partners that you're, you know, potentially a job in D.C. that exposes you to the legislative process. You can try to work on the Hill for a senator or a congress congressperson and, you know, developing your relationships and your connections with organizations that are that are doing a lot of lobbying. Um, so, you know, off the top of my head, I think the one campaign and results do a really good job. Of, they're probably among the most effective organizations that are uh, investing the most money into this this type of lobbying. I'd also say Interaction does a lot of really good work. IntraHealth does a lot of really good work. Um, Save the Children, Care. There's plenty of other organizations out there that all have, you know, at least two or three staff focused on lobbying and, and uh, developing their relationships with, with people on the Hill. But um, but yeah, and I'm always happy to talk to any individual that is interested in pursuing this as a career path. So, you know, just shoot me a... a just put your personal phone number <laughs> in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> we can put my email there. Maybe not. Don't send me a text at 2 a.m. asking to talk about lobbying but yeah yeah so the general ea criteria for evaluating you know what you should do and what's going to have marginal impact is consider you know considers tractability and neglectedness and so do you have i can see why global health for lobbying purposes fits those but you know do you have any causes that you think you know based on either tractability or the fact that there are a lot of people paying attention to the issue are probably not great for lobbying not not great candidates for having an impact through lobbying oh yeah i mean or most, other great candidates <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i think most things that you hear about in the news are actually usually not good great candidates for lobbying um i mean you know the thing about politics is that every like everyone in the country cares about it you know and and a lot of issues that are really deeply divided already have tons of money and time and effort and energy poured into them. So, you know, I would not want to found an organization that it's that's working on, you know, whatever issue of the day you want to pick. Um, I just think that a lot of that money gets canceled out by the just what everyone else is spending. Um, so, you know, look for an issue that is neglected, that is not that is that is not uh, doesn't have partisan lines drawn on it already. You know, global health, Republicans and Democrats like it. Um, and so that, that makes it a really good candidate. And it's, of course, effective, you know, at the margins where, you know, moving a, a, a dollar of federal money from whatever else it would be have been spent on to global health is a really, really good thing. Um, and putting it especially into an effective global health intervention is even better. So, you know, for in terms of other candidates, I would if, if I were you know to do a lit review or a systematic review of this, this question, I would look at, you know, what are things that are neglected that don't have partisan lines already drawn, you know, deeply entrenched views on either side, don't have a lot of money being spent on them um, on either side and are seem like effective uses of money. Those are, those would be the top top three criteria off the top of my head, I think. So for many people in the rationalist community, especially Politics seems to be a sort of stop sign yeah. in, in that they uh, worry that they will become become these tribal, irrational creatures uh, just uh, by virtue of... Incapable uh, of uh, any <laughs> rational thought, yeah. yeah. There goes my rationality. <laughs> uh, so do you feel that working in the politics space 
impacted uh, your thinking in and what do you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, have, like, basically, you're asking, have I been brainwashed? Where are you worried about this prior to entering this? Uh, oh yeah, genre? no, absolutely. Yeah, we know anything now is No, I mean th- this. This is a criticism I do take really seriously, and um, and it's been brought up a number of times when I've sort of approached people to talk about uh, lobbying work and how how effective I think it can be in terms of expected value. I do think it's a very legitimate concern. And, you know, I would, I, I do think that it, I, I do think that we should be very mindful as a movement in terms of how much of our time and energy we're putting into this and how it does affect our cognitive processes. Because you're totally right. I mean, party politics does make us dumb. It does make us overlook facts. It, it makes us, it warps our judgment. It, you know, in, in many, many ways, I'm not a psychologist, but in many, many ways, it definitely shapes our thinking probably in mostly har- mostly harmful ways. But I think that, you know, the the really good thing about effective altruism is that we're very self-reflective and we really, really check our priors very a lot. We check our priors a lot. And so making sure that, um, you know, that cognitive trait, I think that's so inherent to effective altruism does guard us a little bit against this risk. And I think that just the, the major question then would be, well, you know, we know, I, at least I think we know that the expected value and the return on investment of lobbying work is so high is that is that cognitive skill that effective altruists have strong enough to guard against the risk of entering party politics? And I, I think it is. I think this is something that we can do and we should shoot for. So, yeah. Do you think that there's that those concerns maybe warrant like a greater separation of theory and practice or um, I don't know, a greater integration of theory and practice with uh, you say that you think that he is probably a little too biased toward idle. I shouldn't say idle thought. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, thought yeah. that they're not putting into action. But. I, I sort of wonder what to do about it and what you think the, again, the right balance is probably an empirical question, but um, <laughs> what do you think we should, what what do you think we should do about it? Yeah, it's it's such a tough question. I, I don't know if I have a great answer. I mean, like, I, I, I definitely value both. You know, I think that there's I, there's tons of people that I see in the in the EA community who I read online, I follow their work pretty closely, and um, and maybe they're not necessarily as interested in doing the type of work that Charity Science is doing, and that's fine. I think there's tons of value in, in theory um, and in generating hypotheses about how we should work in the world and, and then letting other people work those ideas out. Um, so I don't I don't want to discount that work at all. I just think as a movement, we might slightly be in, in dire- leaning in the direction of, you know, over-theorizing, over-hypothesizing and not implementing things directly. I wish I could give a better answer than that. All right. So just to keep yourself from being biased, you know, have or or sort of as a way of like pre-registering your hypothesis, just to say, like, I'm going to test the this other person's thinking who's not political and like I'll be the warrior and like they can be really thinking about like what's actually true. Yeah. Or do we not want to have warriors who are not thinking? (laughs) (laughs) So it seems to me that blocking of Facebook would be a a more effective intervention in terms of... (laughs) In terms of helping you think more clearly, yeah. Facebook can definitely be an echo chamber, I think, yeah. Speaking of echo chambers, uh, do you worry that effective altruism uh, is becoming one? And if so, what do you think we can do to combat it? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I do see arguments every once in a while within EA that strike me as, you know, people I think have really 
really bought into a lot of the ideas of EA probably maybe a little bit too hard. And like, for example, um, I think, I mean, I've talked a lot about expected value today, but I think that there are, I, I have seen many arguments where people just take cost effectiveness or, effect, or expected value numbers extremely literally. And it's frustrating because that's a, a cognitive failure. I think that we've seen sort of since the beginning of the EA movement, I think it has become less prominent and, and be, you know, thanks to the uh, very good criticism of a lot of people. I think a lot of people are trying to push back against that. Um, but I still see it every once in a while. I mean, I wrote a I wrote a post on why EAs should uh, invest, put more time and energy into lobbying, and some of the pushback that I got from that I think sort of resembled that those types of arguments. Can you clarify what you think the mistake is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So so basically, like you know, I think this happens on existential risk a lot. Is you know, people who say, well, you know, even if what I'm putting my time into has a point oh 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 one percent chance of success, you know, the return of if it did succeed is so great that it dwarfs everything mm-hmm. else. And this is the argument that people make a lot for existential risk work that you know, preventing a catastrophe that would end humanity is so important and produces so much value in the future that we need to put all of our time and energy into that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that just speaks to like an absurd degree of overconfidence. Um, and that overconfidence is, is a, a psychological bias that uh, is unfortunately present in the EA movement, I'll say. I don't think it's, I don't know if it's common, but I do see it every once in a while, you know. Do you think that there's a risk when people are, you know, engaging in that extreme expected value uh very unlikely uh, outcome, but very, very catastrophic uh, kind of thinking that they will crowd out even very worthy causes? Or is there like a threshold after which people (laughs) need to kind of, you know, like stop deciding and start acting? No, absolutely. I mean, this this happens all the time that I see this is like, I mean, this is a phenomenon called Pascal's mugging. And it's, you know, essentially when people apply extreme, you know, very extreme expected value arguments in order to advance their cause over others. And I think that we really need to apply a lot more intellectual humility in, as a movement and understand that there is value in each in, in, in all of the causes in our movement, you know. And I don't pretend to, to be able to assign with any precision which cause area is the most effective. Um, I think cause prioritization is extremely important, and I really value those the people that, that do that kind of work. Um, but I do think that, you know, we need to understand that there are limits to what we can accomplish with that type of research. Um, and whenever someone says, you know, well, I think that my cause, the thing that I happen to be working on is the most effective, um, that honestly often just strikes me as motivated reasoning. You know, I, I work in global health and I'm not going to pretend, you know, my, my mom works in, glo- works in global health. Um, and there's a lot of like personal reasons that drew me to global health beyond just pure impact. I do think that global health is, is one of the most effective fields anyone can work on, but I, I really admire the work that people do in the animal movement. I think that movement building itself as like, you know, you know, movement building around EA is really important. Um, and I think that existential risk is really important. Um, and I'm not going to pretend to be able to say which one of those is the best. Um, and I wish that everyone would kind of have that humility in, in thinking through which, what to prioritize. So I think this is a good place to segue into uh, the next section of our podcast, which uh, starts with the ideological Turing test. (laughs) So for you, this will be the best counterargument against EA. Or what what do you think the best arguments uh, against effective altruism as a philosophy or way of thinking are? Yeah, I mean, I I think I think you do need to to distinguish between sort of uh, the arguments against EA as um, as like a 
as an intellectual movement and sort of the ideas behind effective altruism and how effective altruism operates as an actual movement, just like as some as a, as a bunch of people that are trying to do good in the world. Um, and those those are separate things, I think. Um, I mean, in terms of the 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 intellectual movement of that part of it. Honestly, I, I haven't heard a lot of convincing arguments against it. I, I I really do. I've read I've read criticisms every time there's an EA criticism. I read it and I really deeply try to process it. It's not just something that I read, you know, skim over and sort of hate read and go on to the next <laughs> thing. That's not what I do. But I haven't I haven't read a lot of arguments on that that I've been convinced by. However, I do think that there's plenty of criticisms criticisms that I've read in terms of how effective altruists are implementing and doing effective altruism. That like that that happens all the time. So like you know this um, expected value argument that I just made I think is is one is a common one that that, that I think is valid is that some effective altruists over apply expected value estimates. Um, another one that I think is in the same vein of sort of how we're doing effective altruism those criticisms. Um, is that um, effective altruism? Effective altruists perhaps don't care enough about systems, and I think that is changing. I mean, you've seen a lot of work from Open Philanthropy Project, from others who are really, you know, people who are, who are working, you're trying to get Hillary Clinton, who was trying, who were trying to get Hillary Clinton put in office. We've seen a lot more effort directed at explicitly political acts and things that change, attempt to change the systems rather than, you know, influencing donations and, and good at the margins. You know, like charity science, our work is, is you know, scaling up a cost-effective intervention. That's very, very much marginal thinking, I think. Um, whereas perhaps as a movement, we're not putting as much effort into systems and bigger things that are bigger than us. And, and that is, that is a failing of our movement. I think we need to do better at that. I think we're definitely improving. And I think that criticism was absolutely valid five, five, six years ago. And I was a hundred percent behind it when it was made then. Increasingly, I think it's less valid because I see movement towards, you know, changing systems. But I, I, I want people to continue making that criticism because I think we're still not near where we could be. Yeah, it was also my biggest concern coming into EA, and I'm glad it's going in the right direction, hopefully. Do you think, off the top of your head, there there are any promising things in um, the systematic way that uh, EA could be working on? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's difficult, like, in the moment, uh, because Trump, honestly. <laughs> um, but um, There are other countries. That oh, you know, absolutely. <laughs> I, I was going to get to those, yeah. I mean, I think that, like... America first, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think that if you know if you take a slightly broader view, both geographically and in terms of just thinking about you know that our careers are are really long. Eighty, they're you know eighty thousand hours. How are we best going to spend them? And I think I think that we should really think about you know how you're building up career capital and and spending that wisely. So I do think that you know working in D.C. potentially even during the Trump administration, I think is a good bet because there there's some candidates for things that could happen during the Trump administration. I think there's some potential for global health security. Uh, legislation. Uh, I could go into that if if you want me to, but but I, I think that I think that working broadly in D.C., you know, to to affect the money that USAID is spending, that CDC is spending, that other organizations relevant to development work, you know, th- I think that's really high high impact potentially. I think do, getting career capital in London, you know, influencing DFID, which is the UK aid agency aid agency. I think that's potentially high impact. And then I think in Geneva as well, there's so many multilateral organizations there from WHO to the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB and tuberculosis and malaria. Um, and then Gavi, which is the Global uh, Alliance for Vaccines. 
so but there, there's plenty of other organizations and i don't even more broadly i don't want to diminish the importance of uh, you know a lot of uh low and increasingly middle income countries are contributing a lot more to aid to foreign aid and their domestic spending on health is very large so you know it, it, i i think it would be very wise if someone took a long uh, you know a very long term bet and started building up their career as a lobbyist in Delhi, in India, or in Beijing, or there's tons of other city, cities in, in, in Cape Town, tons of other cities, capital cities of governments that are, it will increasingly become bigger and bigger donors in supporting global health. And I wish that uh, more people would make those bets in their careers. Well, not only will they become donors, but they will also pass legislation that will influence their citizens, which exactly. in the case of China, India is pretty large chunk of the world's population exactly i mean the amount of money that those countries are spending on health themselves and you know massively dwarfs foreign aid we don't we need to not stop thinking just about foreign aid what have you recently changed your mind about what have i recently changed my mind about um I did. I was convinced by an argument over the weekend, actually, when I was presenting my arguments about lobbying, um, I, uh, someone argued against that, that effective altruists should put their time into lobbying against Trump. I, I'm not sure if I'm con- totally convinced, actually, by his argument, but I think it's fair. Um, he was essentially arguing that, you know, Trump work is you know, lobbying or, you know, organizing against Trump is so crowded. Um, there's so many people doing it already, and it's not the best. It's not the comparative comparative advantage of effective altruism. There are already plenty of social justice movements doing this this work. Um, and you know, I'm not sure this this is a really tough argument. And like everything, I think it's an empirical question. Um, but I increasingly think he may be right, and and lean away from that argument. And and that, you know, our time is just as effective altruists. Our time is just better spent on global health legislation or on other priority lobbying areas that other people identify. What habits did you recently take up that uh, most positively influenced your life? I've been trying to get a lot of sleep. That's always something that's important. <laughs> tell I us did... about this bizarre habit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, sleep. Let me tell you about sleep. How does it work? No, no, no. Um, another thing that I, that I have been doing recently is uh, taking something called creatine. Um, <laughs> so it's a supplement. And I don't actually usually take supplements, but um, there was there was some effective altruists that uh, made posts about sort of the benefits of creatine and how it's mostly used by like bodybuilders who, who want to get stronger. And like, that's not particularly my goal. <laughs> I don't work out a lot, but, um, but you know, it would be a nice uh, side benefit, I guess. Um, and there was some evidence that I saw around uh, the, the IQ benefits of creatine, that potentially it could up your IQ, especially among vegetarians and vegans. And I'm, uh, I'm vegan, so I thought that, that that might be a sensible thing for me to do. The evidence is not super strong, and so I'm, I'm not going to claim that creatine is the holy grail, but it's, it's been, I've enjoyed it. It's, I, I think it's been a good thing for the, you know, the couple weeks that I've been taking it. Yeah, so what books, movies, uh, or otherwise uh, most influenced you? Uh, do you have any <laughs> recommendations? Yeah, I mean, the one recommendation that I always make is t- for folks to get on Twitter. Twitter is the most useful thing ever. Um, I It's been very, very important. Controversial advice. <laughs> <laughs> it's been really, really important in my career and, in, in, you know, um, both you know getting, getting and disseminating information. That I think that aspect of Twitter is really, really useful, especially for breaking news. And if you're working in a job where you do have to know the issues of the day, that's really important. Um, but I also think um, it's useful for just like building your reputation and establishing relationships with people. I can't tell you how many friends I've made over Twitter, mostly global health friends. Um, 
And and so, yeah, it's a really great tool for all of those Definitely things. within the field, I agree. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm in evolutionary biology, and I it's crazy how you can get on a first-name basis and really talk back and forth in a way that you wouldn't almost, even at a conference. Like, exactly. it's so low commitment. Sorry, what yeah. is the name of the website again? So we can <laughs> put it in the show notes so people can find the link. It's a small startup. You've never heard of it, yeah. Um, yeah, so Twitter is <laughs> so Twitter is really great. I definitely recommend that. Um, one one paper that I actually always return to, I, I recommend it a lot to to folks, is um, Toby Ord's paper, um, the moral imperative towards cost effectiveness. Um, so he wrote this paper for uh, uh, it's a, it's a Center for Global Development paper and a Giving What We Can paper as well. Um, and it essentially makes the argument that I've applied most in my career in terms of thinking about you know you know, picking the best intervention is extremely important and moving from, you know, even he, he gives an example, I'm not gonna remember the exact numbers, but moving from the the average most effective HIV AIDS intervention to the most effective HIV AIDS intervention is just astronomical, astronomical in terms of the difference in impact. And so really thinking carefully about the intervention we pick is right. And once I saw that argument, I, I was convinced, you know, I immediately jumped on and, you know, understood this is what I need to do with my career and my life. Oh, is there anything else you would like to share with the audience? Well, uh, uh, you know, apply for the co-founder position if you're interested. I would definitely encourage anyone who wants to start an effective charity to get in touch. And um, I'd love to talk to, to anyone about that. Um, but I think that's it. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thanks. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for coming and talking to us. Anytime. Thanks for listening. Now enjoy our theme song, written and performed by Chris Baker. Mm-hmm.